Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Works Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, this is Lining, uh, Lining Yao. So I'm an assistant professor from Carnegie Mellon University in the School of Computer Science. I run a research group called Morphing Matter Lab, um, and it's basically an interdisciplinary lab looking into the intersection of soft materials, soft robots, and uh, its societal impact in digital fabrication and also in the application domains. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So thank you for joining us, Professor. So I'd like to ask you, when you were a child, do you have any memories about science or something that trigger your imagination to be where you are today? I told the story many times to my students. Uh, so uh, our lab actually has a stronger focus in um, ecological morphing materials, especially um, the type of material that rely on natural stimuli for transformation. And the study um, or the interest, let's say, started when I was a child, but we dived deeper into it um, as I was doing PhD with my former advisor at MIT. Um, so as a child, we used to uh, uh, run into the forest and pick up mushrooms. So I lived, I lived in Inner Mongolia, so a lot of pine trees there. Uh, so on the way for mushrooms, we also try to pick up pine cone. So we realized basically after the rain, all the scales are closed. But if you pick it um, back and leave it on the balcony for a couple of days, all the scales will open. And uh, magically, if you place it back in water, it will close again. So um, I just felt magical, but didn't know why. But later, as um, my study went, uh, through, uh, we realized this is actually a hygromorphic phenomenon. In a sense, the smart material is a, is a morphing behavior powered by the moisture flux in the environment. So, uh, so pine cone becomes a symbol of our lab, and it does carry the spirit of how material could embody intelligence. And this intelligent morphing behavior can be powered without electricity. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Um, so I would like to ask you, since you're really passionate about materials specifically, what is the first soft robot you build, if you remember? Yeah, so it's a, it's a blurred definition. What would you call it a soft robot? I, I'm sure we will dive a little bit deeper into that. Uh, so in my own concept, the first soft robot I built was a was a light bulb. So I was working with a few colleagues over MIT for my PhD. Uh, so we basically ended up using kind of the standard uh, pneumatic inflatable bladders to make a really long coiled actuator. Mm-hmm. But we ended up putting a, a light strap uh, on a substrate. It's a paper uh, silicone composite structure. So when you inflate it, so basically you can you can pull this it's a string, we call it string. You can pull the string and then a string will wrap into a light bulb shape and light up. 
<laughs> That's a aha moment when we think about how a self-robotic behaviors could be embedded into our daily life. Interesting. So, since you said about definitions of robotics, I would like to ask you how you would see the, def the right definition from your experience, or maybe fit you, your nature of the work you are doing. What's the best definition you can have? Yeah, I really uh, liked the concept um, uh, um, uh, extended groups of robotics have been talking about around uh, robotic materials. I know Nicholas Carrillo, for example, uh, took a lead and wrote a science paper around this concept. So to me, um, at least in, in, my, in my lab, so we are very interested in the idea of a robotic behavior that could be embedded into our daily materials. So when we talk about robots, it's not about the form factor. It's not about you know the stereotypical robotic arm or metallic looking robots with uh, like a humanoid looking or Boston Dynamic dogs. So it, it is more about the um, this this smart way to to sense, to respond, to adapt, to learn. Uh, and to be symbiotic with, uh, with the environment, uh, regardless of a living environment or a environment that's more industrial or more social, for example, even. So yeah, basically moving away from the stereotypical form factors of robots, but really looking into the responsive materiality of a robot. Mm -hmm. And what do you think may be the most important question that we have to consider while we work in this direction? What could be the most important question? Um, again, so I'm really uh, trying to answer your questions uh, with a lot of references from my own research lab or research interests, let's say. So, so there are certainly a lot of technical challenges and exciting ones because it's such an interdisciplinary field, uh, material science and uh, you know control um, and also the how to how to combine the conventional mechanics design with uh, mechanical design with um, material mechanics. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, on the other hand, I do think another very interesting challenge, and I also wanted to say almost like an urgent one, is to really understand the killer app of self-robotics. Mm -hmm. um, and there are conventional ones. Uh, people have been really making great progresses uh, towards, for example, biomedical use cases and, uh, uh, and uh, some of the uh, kind of industrial assembly line, et cetera. But I think um, there is a great potential to bring self-robotic technology into a broader context. So I mentioned, you know, material behavior embedded into our furnitures, for example, living environment, habitat, habitat for people and habitat for animals. Um, and I do think soft robotics give us a great leverage for, uh, for, for these type of applications. So for, um, for our lab, for example, there is a really fun project uh, we've been working on that is related to robotic food. Uh, calling it robotics is a little bit exaggerating, but it's definitely shape-changing and morphing food. So we wanted to produce edible materials that are flat, and um, then when you cook them, they can transform into different 3D shapes. Um, and uh, so, they, so, so basically you can save a lot of 
packaging space by packing food flat. For example, pasta they can be packed all flat and then transform into different shapes to give different surface textures or mouthfeel as people are cooking them. And uh, the underlining techniques we use in terms of, you know, um, morphing phenomena out of a hydrogel sweating behavior. So those are very widely discussed topics within soft robotic community. And uh, there are a lot of knowledge being accumulated, um, but we are kind of using it in a, a very different context. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. So beyond the fun part, do you think that maybe there's substantial application for what you're doing? Maybe something in the space industry for food or something. Do you imagine where we can deploy such activity like that, research line like that? Yeah, uh, if we're talking about food, uh, definitely. I see there is a great opportunity to bring, um, broadly speaking, smart material, concretely speaking, robotic material strategy mm -hmm. uh, into. So we talk a lot about, yeah, so if you are on a three-year mass trip and you really during our conversation with some astronauts, they really crave Earth-liking food. You can imagine space becomes so expensive. Um, mm -hmm. And even disaster site or hiking food, right? And we do, um, so the work was partially a collaboration with a, uh, and sponsored by a pasta company. So they also see this as an interesting way to save manufacturing costs because uh, usually pasta are made by extrusion so you have to have different extrusion head and almost customized manufacturing line for different shapes of pasta um, but our technique basically uh, allow you to make pasta that's flat <laughs> which is the easiest shape they can sheet uh, and then you can just uh, by doing some surface uh, texture modification to to get that self-folding effect you want um, and that could lower the cost of their manufacturing and also of course the sustainable aspects of packaging is also attractive to um, to the pasta manufacturer but also to uh, to actually um, supermarkets a place like Target. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. So actually you have a lot of interesting projects. I think your childhood is reflected so much in the way you and your team design the project. One of the projects interesting is self-healing. Could you mm -hmm. please tell us more about why self-healing is such an important and hot topic now in soft robotics, firstly, for our students? Yeah, um, I assume self-healing is not only just hot right now, right? It has been a very active uh, feature, active research field because it's one of those desired features of magical robots for the past decade, I want to say. But we did um, uh, work on one of the self-healing uh, materials recently. So for me, um, I think um, it's it's important to um, build resilience into the into this type of materials because they are soft, people often associate things being soft, being weak. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but uh, then that's how our skin actually also uh, behave, but our skin will be able to heal. I think self-healing is largely inspired by how nature re, um, rebuild or fix themselves. And I do think there is a blurred boundary between regrowth, rebuild and reheal. And we also talk about, you know, that also leads to this concept of self-damaging as well, you know, some animals, they, 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 
they lose a leg or a tail when in danger. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a group of concepts. Um, I think together when we think about them, very exciting, uh, exciting in a sense to incorporate more lifelike, more resilient behaviors into the materials. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you what do you think maybe uh, one of the challenges or first limitation for um, self-healing, for example, do you think the time that material takes to heal, if it's something you take six hours, do you think that you want to heal it in a shorter time? Do you think that's something necessary for industrial application? What could be limitation you can imagine if we can deploy self-healing for self-robotics in a broader term? Yeah, many challenges exist uh, still, I think, for self-healing materials. So um, one aspect we addressed in a recent publication is um, that how you can make multifunctional self-healing materials. So there are self-healing materials that, that, that mechanically heals very well, or separately electrically heals very well, or optically, think about it. Um, but how can we make a self-healing material that, that's versatile enough to be able to self-heal both mechanically and electrically? Uh, mm -hmm. And electrically, we also mean to have, uh, to some extent, controllable and tunable elect conductivity. So we want conductor so we can connect with other semi, um, semiconductor components, but we sometimes also want higher resistance components so they themselves can function as sensors, uh, but we want this to be tunable. So that's one aspect. The other one, which is conceptually interesting is, um, so when we try to do a robot demo, we usually cut it with a knife <laughs> and then we might, then bring them closer enough and sometimes maybe you even have to mechanically push a little bit and then the self-healing will happen because of a lot of the self-healing phenomenon is actually diffusion based so then um but then that's not uh, how uh, nature work um so we yeah. think it could be more magical if uh, if things can for example self-break and then self-assemble basically the the they know where they want it to go which parts they want to connect, and then they, they heal it together. And that, see, it requires different, almost different types of fundamental uh, physics to make it happen, like how things self-break, for example, being part of it. And the third one, external stimuli. Sometimes we want it. Some groups of self-healing material require external stimuli, like a laser light, for example. Um, it, it might be really practical for some scenarios, but it might be not. So how we can possibly tune the triggering condition for self-healing, I, I think is also a very exciting topic to go deeper. And last one, last one is related to, again, real world applications. So we had a conversation with a wood coating company recently. So they basically do coating for wood floor. Uh, their coating uh, make the wood waterproof but for but but people make scratches they were talking about how you can have a rigid coating that also self heal but there are a lot of requirements they want it to be robust they want it to um self sustain for uh you know um hopefully years and they have to be transparent because they want to expose the texture from the bottom and the plus they have to be waterproof and everything else so how we can incorporate the engineering of self healing with other um, desired uh, functionalities of material for tailored use cases, I think is still a emerging topic. Mm -hmm. That's uh, very interesting as well. 
But here's a question because you highlighted that maybe we have to understand the physics of self-healing and how the material can heal. Do you think that it comes down that we have to understand the material or the damaged material either in micro scale or macro scale? I, I know you are interested in, in designing in both scales, but do you think when it comes to understanding which level you have to go for? It's a challenging, it's like a debate still we have which level we have to go for um, yeah. so that we can understand how can we have a, a better recipe for understanding the self-healing material. Yeah, so um, I can only speak uh, to my own experiences. So I worked very closely with Professor uh, Mohammed Islam. So we have a team mm -hmm. that has material scientists uh, and also electrical engineers, mechanical engineer, and even human computer interaction researchers in our team. Um, so um, Mohammed, so Professor Mohammed Islam, so he's um, definitely more looking from the microscopic perspective. So there, there's chemistry. We, we, we didn't invent new molecules, but uh, um, a lot of investigation in terms of how the molecule would um, diffuse um, and how you can um, uh, synthesize new material composition to uh, uh, achieve the uh, desired or tune the, the desired mechanical and electrical properties. Um, so yeah, exactly the self-healing material we've been working on is a composition is, is a composite of uh, basically PDMS, um, a, a variation of PDMS, PBS, and a, a carbon nanotube. So, so then, uh, but there is also macroscopic engineering we did. So I generally call them uh, hierarchical structures uh, or metamaterial structures. So, so for example, there are things about the material will flow too much um, and it doesn't uh, hold its own shape. So how we can by printing smart um, millimeter scale or centimeter scale metamaterial structures to either better leverage or fight against um, the uh, creeping effect of the inherent material the, or the inherent property of this material. So that was solved actually by um, mechanical and electrical engineers who had a, a little, little uh, knowledge on the chemistry side. Mm -hmm. That's great. So I'm curious to ask you how, because you have a lot of interesting projects, how you can develop you with your team a new idea you are going to work on. For example, you have a machine knitting soft robotics. And if you can tell us more about that project as well, it's interesting. How we, how we came up with idea and why you think it's important, machine knitting, soft robotics. So we are very interested in uh, the intersection of novel fabrication techniques and also the interesting mechanics uh, you can get out of the material as well as the fabrication methods. Um, so we, following that line, we started to look into alternative ways to uh, fabricate the soft materials, uh, especially the ones that we can use for actuation or morphing. Um, and the additive manufacturing, of course, it's always there. Um, but so we, we, we made friends with a neighbor lab <laughs> run by Professor James McCann. So he's a world expert in basically computational algorithms for uh, fancy knitting machines. <laughs> so we started to try to understand how we can use uh, knitting as a way to fabricate 3D artifacts. 
with pretty well-defined underlining structure. Um, and if you ask Professor Jim McCann, he would say uh, a knitting machine is a super fast 3D printer. <laughs> and uh, it allows us basically to inversely design and prescribe the shapes we want for the soft robots. For example, you can input a bunny and you can um, have higher level specifications like, you know, I wanna, for example, I want the neck to to um, bend left and I want one of the ears to twist. And then the algorithm will tell us how to uh, uh, embed the tendon actuator, the drawstring actuators. Um, and the magical part is both the shape and also the drawstrings, the tendon in this case, can be knitted within, within one manufacturing pipeline. So then suddenly you can imagine fabricating this type of soft robots uh, uh, stuffed toys that can actuate, if you will, um, uh, very rapidly in in a mass manufacturing setup. So I can imagine Shenzhen factories, for example, if they take our code, they can produce those robots um, hundreds or thousands uh, uh, a week, for example. Great. Mm -hmm. So since you're interested in the material, how you would see the the intelligence in material. At which level do you expect your material to be intelligent and able also for computation? What's your source for the intelligent soft material? I think there are some general agreement, um, maybe different branches within the soft robotics and smart material community. Um, and we generally agree materials that can sense, can actuate, can communicate, can compute and make its own decisions are considered uh, intelligent and intelligent material candidates for soft robots. And uh, people are um, more and more talking about this concept of learning. And I have my own interpretation of a learning material. Um, it doesn't need to be uh, in my uh, concept. I don't think it needs to be too incomplete or you know, like material computation that realize the end and end gates. <laughs> mm. um, and even materials that can um, learn from the environment, extract the information and response adaptively, I think I call it a learning ability. I, I, I have this example, a dumb example of a, a outer sole of a shoe, a hiking shoe, for example, the sole is made of this intelligent material depending. So if I keep walking, walking, climbing, running, um, and the soul can understand more and more terrain topology and terrain conditions. And then the next time, if I go on a hike, so the soul will automatically sense the terrain condition, the latitude, and also the slope of my uh, mountain I'm hiking, uh, and suggest the right stiffness, let's say, reconfigure the right stiffness and shape to make my hiking efficient. I would consider this as a piece of material that can learn from the environment experiences of the user. Um, so, so I think that, that it has to be part of the scope of intelligent material, basically learning, but different people have different levels of learning efforts. Mm -hmm. Another almost uh, conceptual way to understand intelligent material is, this is more of a question um, for myself. So, we often talk about functional intelligence. 
um, but we never really talk about the emotional intelligence. If we think about a human being, how you communicate, how you deal with stress, and how you uh, collaborate, and how you be ethical and uh, social and um, be empathetic and be inclusive. So those are part of the, the, the emotional intelligence. So I started to wonder how you know soft robotic materials can have more social impacts. And one way to go is to incorporate more emotional intelligence to a soft robotic material. And that's relevant, relevant to human robot interaction, thinking about a companion robot um, for elderly or for or, or educational robots for kids. If the robots can change not only its voice uh, or the conversation, but also kind of the, the appearance, the shape, the stiffness, the aspects soft robots can afford depending on the interaction they have with other human users. I would consider those robots have emotional intelligence per se. Mm -hmm. That's uh, also great points. And I would like to ask you about the emotion since you said we have to think about emotional intelligence of robotics. Do you think, for example, in your project, for example, self-healing and the sensor can sense the damage or the cut happening to material? Do you think emotion also restricted to design the perfect sensor that can enable us to sense when damage happening to our soft robotics so that they can respond to that? What other scenario you imagine that we can have emotion? What are the challenges for that? Uh, so just clarify your question. So you are talking about motion or emotion? Emotion, yeah. Motion, M-O. -O. Emotions, yeah, the emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, so the self-healing material we developed again. So one of the applications we really liked was related to how the material um, sense the behaviors of the user and the context of how the material is being used. So, um, so, so you know, instead of just use a knife to cut a piece of material as a technical demo. We want to understand what are the natural behaviors that to induce different uh, different ways to reconfigure the self-healing material and really exemplify why self-healing is useful. So we ended up uh, developing a almost like a game controller or if you will, a TV remote controller. Um, so depending on the way the user hold it, uh, they can have different functions associated with it. So first of all, if you uh, if you just hold it like a you know conventional way, you would hold the remote controller it function as a one person uh, remote controller. And then if you get two of these modules and connect them uh, uh, head to head to toe, then it suddenly becomes a longer panel. And uh, also um, you can start to use it as a piano key. And then if more friends want to join you for a game, for example, a car racing game, you can just simply cut it into four pieces. And then the function of these four pieces will automatically reconfigure to a car racing game. So each one can hold one as a capacitive sensor to you know, navigate through um, a different, different uh, driving conditions. And then by the very end of the day, you can imagine the users can bring all these four pieces together uh, and uh, reheal it back in the original remote form factor. Mm -hmm. So in this case, um, the material can reconfigure itself depending on how 
sorry, the, uh, the users can reconfigure the remote controller. The sensing functionalities of the remote con controller can automatically be reconfigured as well. Um, so for example, when you play piano, you basically have uh, 12 capacitive, uh, sorry, 12 touch sensing pad. You can, you can trigger different notes, but when it's in car racing game mode, and suddenly becomes a capacitive sensing pad that allow you to change the directions of the uh, the uh, the interfaces on the screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great also. But I would love to ask you, from experience, what are the most misconception? Do you think most common in our field, and we have to change? Um, I think. I wouldn't call that misconception. <laughs> I don't know. I think some robot fields have been doing really great. Uh, and I love the spirit of how uh, us being very brave uh, and interdisciplinary. <laughs> A lot of mechanical engineer by training turns themselves into material scientists and being acknowledged by a material science field is just amazing to, to see. Um, so, but I do like to, I think to uh, promote a concept, soft robotics doesn't have to be fully soft. Um, and there is a very blurred boundary also between the concept of materials and the concept of machine or conventional robots, let, let, let's say. Um, and uh, if we think about humans, we are actually made of bone and muscle. A lot of the, um, the um, movement, like the motion types of a human being can be well explained by uh, kind of like the, the, the conventional linkage, sorry, not linkage, like uh, kinematic uh, mechanisms. So I think, um, yeah, so I think I actually really like this idea of bone and muscle or bone and muscle and flesh <laughs> and skin. So right, a lot of people working on robotic skin. And I also do like this blurred boundary between what is material and what is machine. Um, and uh, if we started to embed more and more computational power, more and more discrete and computational elements into soft robotic platforms, and it suddenly becomes machines. And if we try to miniaturize machines more and more, and started to consider the nodes dispersed in a in a in a uh, in a soft material matrices in a piece of fabric or in our environment, and suddenly machines collection of machines become a material behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, if I ask you, um, what are the biggest technolo technological roadblocks for soft robotics in general? You think that something maybe in short term and, and a long term as well. So uh, for a short term, I think the challenge is still lies in the controllability of the materials. Um, uh, so for, for example, the traditional electrical engineering field, it's so well defined in terms of its infrastructure, the toolkits, the logic, um, and there are very well defined circuitry diagrams. And uh, also there is a huge industry backing this this field up so they're intel making all the all the chips and uh, and there is industrial protocol for us to keep updated of the technology uh, being developed so i think in soft robotic fields it's still um, maybe because it's still in its infancy so we are still uh, we don't have a 
well-established toolkits, infrastructure, protocols, you know, industrial support. Um, and uh, we, we have our community, so we go to conferences and understand um, some rules and some sets of materials. Mm. Uh, but it's still, I think it's still not so, so standard, standardized. And uh, that makes us, um, I guess that makes, for example, teaching harder. Uh, there's no, uh, uh, yeah, like a standard uh, textbook that covers every aspect of soft robotics. Maybe maybe it, it has out there already. <laughs> I'm just out of date. Um, but it also makes the democratization of this field a little hard. Um, how to convince other engineers, for example, to, uh, to be part of this. Um, and how to convince computer scientists like, yeah, programmable material is too incomplete and you can, you can have uh, a full control like how you would calculate the inverse kinematic problem. You can totally calculate mm -hmm. the, the, the manufacturing and the control of the soft robot. That's still a little tricky. Yeah, I think that's also interesting because of the lot of question from here. For example, um, you say that soft robotics, of course, highly interdisciplinary and we have a challenge of understanding different language and that's something we all agree. So my question to you, how do you think we can overcome this challenge in the project so that we can be on the same page and reach the desired level of outcome? Yeah, so uh, I, I think um, there are some things I can do. There are something I believe is really important, but perhaps it's a little beyond my, my research uh, capacity. So some things I'm definitely interested in doing and are doing is to uh, be more interdisciplinary and open-minded um, in terms of the colleagues you are talking to. Uh, conferences you are attending, <laughs> venues you are publishing. So I, uh, for example, I notice um, even just in terms of the uh, the understanding of the morphing behavior from a, a modeling perspective, different research fields have their own sets of terminology and their liked methods. Um, their their their. Uh, experimental physicists, they like to use uh, metric tensors. And uh, I just had a chat with uh, Professor Iran Sharon. So he's a, he's a pioneer in um, basically uh, Euclidean surfaces. So he, he's the very first ones uh, trying to use cross-linking, sorry, uh, differential cross-linking in hydrogels to understand the morphing phenomenon as the hydrogel is uh, put into a solvent. And he's seeing this more from an analytical perspective. And there is a great, great science uh, computer graphic community. And they are more about mass spring models and they try to have simplified but much more efficient um, uh, uh, algorithms uh, and underlying infrastructure to simulate uh, basically morphing phenomenon or even how to solve inverse problem like a flattening a surface or flattening an arbitrary shape into flat if you want to reversely calculate um, uh, two different shape states as things morph. And then of course there's uh, mechanical engineering field that's to do more with numerical simulations and uh, more rigorous um, force and form analysis. Yeah, so, so I think uh, 
not like we need to do them all, but being able to understand the advantages that coming from different community and uh, let all the community feel comfortable to talk to each other and learn from each other and collaborate. I think it's, it's definitely really important. Uh, I, I, I'm from computer science uh, school, so in CMU, so I have a lot of uh, students who come in, you know, wanting to do machine learning, um, but knows very little about um, mechanics or mechanical engineering, material science, and they feel scared of it. I, I, I see an interesting challenge to uh, uh, almost, yeah, fit them up with a, a proper information that's both from the physical and virtual world to be able to conduct great research in self robotics, but they are great, great programmers and can do really amazing machine learnings, for example. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's one of my, I think, suggestion. The other one, which I think I would be interested in doing it, uh, but it's definitely challenging is to find that universal language, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, like, like circuit diagrams and uh, uh, logical gates in uh, in electrical engineering, um, like uh, some of the more analytical um, uh, approaches in synthetic biology. So they have a you know uh, like a biological circuits they can leverage to convey to convey the underlying design method uh, within the community. So I think a similar kind of a universal language, universal design language. Um, that would be that would be super helpful to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great message. I think the other question may be relatable here: how we can enable, how can we enable more inclusive culture around competitive ideas in the field? Do you think? Do you think? So, how do we enable uh, yeah, more inclusive culture around competitive ideas? So we have inclusive culture for different ideas, how we can make sure this happen in the field. I would like to clarify a little bit. When you say being inclusive, um, uh, do you mean encourage more of our students to get into self-robotic field? Or do you mean encourage, for example, low-income community or marginalized community or even girls, for example, to be more involved. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a one part. But I think the question here about intellectual inclusiveness as well. So mm -hmm. if you dominating the field is dominating in one idea, that's what I mean. Uh, if the field is dominating just in one idea and other approaches are not allowed. So that's that's intellectual inclusiveness as well. That's what I, what the question mean that you we welcome for different approaches and different ideas um, mm -hmm. in the field. If you don't want to answer, I can remove it. So, yeah, so I, I mean, uh, I can try to respond, but if okay. it doesn't make sense or didn't really interpret your questions um, perfectly, feel free to, yeah, feel free to sure. be selective. <laughs> sure. So in terms of making our um, research efforts in the field of soft robotic being more inclusive, uh, Again, I can only speak to my own experiences. I think it is, um, I think it's critical to broaden the impact and the um, application scopes of soft robotics. Um, if you ask me um, on top of my head, 
what exactly soft robot is being used. Mm. I, 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 in my head, I'm thinking of the Boston startup that has the soft robotic gripper picking up cookies. That's a great one. And then I think about Festo uh, having all these amazing jellyfish and things flying in the sky. That's mm -hmm. a great demonstration of the technique itself. But I think still, it would be great to see to see soft robotic technologies uh, being used in broader context. So I, I mentioned um, our food project in the uh, in, in our earlier uh, phase of the interview. Uh, some may agree it's robot, some may agree it's not, some may disagree. <laughs> um, but I think um, there must be some other context we can we can we can we can branch out. So recently we started to tinker around this idea of um, leveraging um, basically uh, uh, morphing matter under underwater, especially for uh, for rebuilding a topologically complex morphing gardens uh, as a temporary refuge for fishes uh, who are suffering from coral bleach. <laughs> so the idea is you can um, make a lot of uh, basically hydrogel based structures that are flat and compact and, and hydrogels can be really dry when, you know, when they are fully dehydrated. Um, so then you can quickly deploy them underwater and then they will swell and self-grow into uh, beautiful forms. Um, and then the research study shows during the coral bleach, all the fishes will be uh, in danger because they don't have uh, um, basically places to hide, their habitat environments are gone. So the concept is how you can use this type of uh, morphing materials to uh, rebuild a ecology and the, 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 the increased topological complexity itself can also benefit the under, underwater um, animals. But see, we are at the almost like the preliminary stage uh, and uh, this is so domain specific. We are trying to share our ideas with um, ocean scientists uh, and the ones who have similar experiences rescuing coral in other ways. Um, I do see the challenges when engineers um, and designers try to work in unfamiliar domain. Uh, there are a lot of assumptions and it's possible what we are proposing doesn't make sense at all. Um, and that perhaps is not the most efficient way to write and publish papers, but I do think it could potentially uh, bring more inclusive thinking um, into, into the soft robotic design. I didn't just mean to make soft robots seems more important. I mean, when we think about soft robotics in such specific contexts, it brings new technical challenges for us to solve. So for example, simply speaking, um, water pressure, and also the salinity level of the salt water will give a different transformation effect to hydrogel based materials. Um, and also the deployment strategy may infer how we would construct the structure on land. So like all these are pretty interesting problems to think about intellectually. I think I like your point to be honest. That's something we have to consider in our design. Thank you for that, Yan. So I would like to take your, uh, your take about this statement. Nonlinearity can bring opportunities of robotics like buckling. However, do you think that traditional control approach can destroy these natural dynamics of soft robotics? Do you agree with that, that traditional control has to be updated for something more beyond what we have 
recently? So I'm not a I'm not a, a robotist by training. So I I I can answer uh, based on my interpretation. But uh, please forgive me <laughs> if it's not super accurate. So when you say traditional control method, of course, uh, in my head I'm thinking of robotic arms and all those uh, uh, inverse or forward kinematics. Um, but there is something in between. So I saw. Um, a recent uh, research work from a research lab in Illinois, UIUC. So they basically uh, used uh, a combination of three McKibben actuators, but smart McKibben, modified McKibben actuators, to make a tangible uh, to navigate through a 3D space with, 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 with a lot of free degrees of freedom. So it's pretty accurate. They can basically, you know, target um, any dots in a 3D space by by pretty much like analytical method. But you can also train a reinforcement learning algorithms on top of it to do the control as well. Um, I want to say this is in between in between so-called classic control methods in robotics and this fully like sort of uncontrollable <laughs> um, and very instance-based. Uh, soft robotic control. So th that is in between. It's very controllable. It gives us enough parameters um, of, to, to train any, for example, reinforcement learning method is differentiable. Um, but then it's not traditional also. I, I think that is a very good way to think about how to push the boundary. So we do want controllability, but we also want to le leverage the, the analog um, aspects of soft, uh, soft materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you for your long work, do you think what could be opportunities for artificial intelligence integrated with soft robotics? Is it in design, the shape and morphology, or just control? What could be the opportunities you would imagine? So I don't think the, um, the you, so there I understand in the soft robotic fields or uh, smart material fields, people are talking about um, a compute, computable or computational material um, that, that can embody more and more logics. Um, and that is, to me, definitely one way to embody AI into material systems. So uh, another maybe a softer way to think about how AI and the soft robotics could coexist is uh, thinking about material being able to learn and being able to adapt in nature. So I had this almost like a provocative question. So how we can turn from machine learning to nature teaching. Um, so that that's a little related to biomimetic and bio-inspired design. If you think about uh, our, uh, our organisms, either through their lifespan or through their the, 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 the span of evolution of their species. So there are a lot of knowledges they're absorbing from the environment, adaptations they're making, trend errors. So um, I do think those processes, uh, both in terms of the behavior and in terms of the design methods, um, I think could be, could be broadly speaking, considered uh, as um, artificial intelligence or AI in materials. So by the way, there is a really interesting book mm. I've been reading recently called Artificial Life. 
um, and it's by Stephen uh, Stephen Levy. So it basically documented the um, um, evolutionary computing community, how how they evolve and how they got developed. And uh, Claude Shannon, for example, is one of the pioneers to invent the cellular automata. So I consider these type of uh, digital matter, digital artifacts, the, um, the community of artificial life um, is evolving our uh, artifacts that embody AI. Thanks for sharing this book. Uh, I think uh, it sounds interesting to, for reading, yeah. So if I ask you, we will close with the end, we have a few questions. As your leader for the group, how to, you can ensure that you and, and your team that develops of robotics will be beneficial to human as a whole. You have a project for four or five years, how we make sure that the outcomes will be beneficial to the community or human at the end of this project? It's a strong, very strong emphasis in our group to, uh, to, to not only, um, to not only pay attention to the intellectual merit or technical merit, but also to the societal impact. I told my students, if it's a PhD, for example, um, he can, she can, um, for each publication, they can focus on one aspect. Maybe this is purely about the algorithms, next is purely about a mechanism, but they should have a large picture. So towards their thesis, there should be a whole story that covers uh, three aspects. I call it a pyramid. Um, this was uh, actually um, uh, inspired by my former advisor, uh, Professor Hiroshi Ishii at MIT Media Lab. So for each project, you want a three levels of uh, three levels of um, merits, let's say. The very top level is actually the vision. So in which context you are developing your technology for, um, and we really would like to see social impact. But if it's not societal, immediate societal impact, at least you are sharing a futuristic vision that inspire or a general knowledge that could enrich. Um, so then the middle level is actually more uh, the um, technical merit. So are you interested in the mechanics, um, the fabrication method, the computational algorithms, for example. And the very bottom layer is your technical details. So it's very important um, the students have balances among all these three three aspects. They should be able to they should be able to build fundamentally, right? And then they should be able to uh, also invent uh, and innovate their technical approaches. And on the very top, you sh they should be able to dream and to feel like they are helpful uh, and be actually helpful by the end of the PhD. Yeah. And if I ask you, do you think ego is important for the researcher? I always consider ego as a, a bit of a negative word. Uh, I think it's very, very important the students are, um, are confident. So they should believe in what, what they think is right, what they think is the most important thing to do, what is the most important questions to ask in their PhD. Um, in that sense, I always encourage the students to some extent to come up with their own, own research questions and agenda. I understand in a lot of engineering disciplines it's a bit hard because students come in with already pre-assigned um, uh, funded project to work on. But as much as possible, I think the students 
and the professors should uh, allow themselves intellectual spaces to swim. Um, and uh, so, yeah, in a sense, eco, in a sense, yes, you have to be confident. But it's, I think it's dangerous if, if we are siloed, we are siloed in the narrow, in the narrow pursuit, whichever pursuit that is. So for example, if I am only here because I wanted to solve this mathematical equation, that's also, I think it's, it's good. It's good as long as that question is hard and as long as that question leads to great potential for others to leverage. But at least I think the researcher who is working on this mathematical equation should, uh, should, should know that um, where are the speaker pictures, which is the community um, the researchers wanted to, wa wa want to benefit or want to help. Um, and uh, that really depends on the styles of the students. Some students want to develop context-specific impact. Some students want to generate general knowledge that will benefit other researchers. But either way, it's great. Um, and it's important to have that, that goal that's a little bit beyond um, herself or himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if I ask you what you think the most important quality you have gained while you work in academic career, something you think is very important for you? Starting my faculty career three years ago, I thought the most important thing is to have a very sharp uh, vision in research and be very productive, that including publishing papers, uh, generating public impact, etc. After three years, um, as of today, I think uh, it's more important to have a mindset of cultivating <laughs> how to be collaborative, not only with your colleagues, how to be collaborative with the students, how to understand their true interests and how to, how to grow together. Because the true innovation, I think, comes from the younger mind, the fresh perspective. Um, and it's important to, yeah, it's important to appreciate different uh, aspects, perspective, intellectual um, capacity of the people around you. Mm -hmm. And if I ask you for a student who is listening, what could be the most important quality they have to maintain? If you asked me three years ago, I think a successful PhD um, basically just needs to be uh, hardworking, be, be sharp, be smart, um, be very good at the specific domain you are interested in and you had training with. And uh, right now, after three years of interacting with different students, yeah. um, in addition to what I just said, I think it's extremely important to be, uh, I think, to be open-minded, to, to, to be communicative, to be collaborative, and also to keep a big goal, to be self-motivated. But self-motivation comes from the bigger goal. Think about the original incentives of why you are getting into the field. Yeah. And if I ask you finally, what was the best advice was given to you as a person, professionally, and was a life changing for you? I think follow your intuition and never make decisions that you would uh, even at that point envision you would regret. Mm. Um, it's very important. And try to strive for the best platform and try to work with nice person and try to work with uh, also, on the other hand, smart person who you 
you you you you can learn from. These are all I think important. But again, these are all important on top of what I said also previously. <laughs> Being yeah. authentic yourself is really important. Yeah. And finally, do you have any final words you'd like to say for the robotics community? Any final words you have? Um, I'm really glad to be to be part of the community. I think it is a really brave, a really brilliant uh, community who has been really pushing the boundary of what the definition of interdisciplinarity is. To some extent, we are transdisciplinary and antidisciplinary. I think it's it's a it's a really intellectually rich domain for colleagues and for students to get into. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you.